for those of uh, for those of you who are um, have just jumped in the past uh, month or two, we are in the middle of a series on the Book of First Peter. Uh, we uh, took a break for Advent. It's been, I think it's almost um, been a couple months now that we took a break. Um, this is the first Sunday back into First Peter, and we left off um, with chapter one, and so we're jumping right back in chapter two. I'll read verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our God, we are thankful for your word. We we remember your many promises around your word, that it's profitable, that it rebukes, that it corrects, that it trains, that it humbles the proud, that it lifts the lowly, that it will convict us and it will comfort us. Um, and so we ask, Spirit, that you would remember the promises that you have given us, that when we gather in your name and when, um, when an ordained minister of God, um, as, as fallible and as broken as I am, um, but it's not me, it's the ordination, it's the position, it's your calling. When that happens and the word is opened up and expounded upon that you do special things in our lives, and so I pray you would do that and uh, use this time for Christ's sake, amen. All right, let me catch us up because... Uh, some of you were not with us when we went through chapter 1, and um, those of you who were, were with us when we went through chapter 1, I'm not going to flatter myself and pretend like you remember anything from that. So let me briefly just catch us up on, on this, and then, and then we'll, we'll get into it. By way of introduction, I just need to do some background here. Um, we are looking at the book of First Peter. The book of First Peter is an important one for us in our day because it, it is written to the church in exile. Um, there was, is the early church, and there's an area of Asia Minor, and um, they've been dispersed by persecution. And the Apostle Peter writes a letter to these early Christians in the dispersion in exile, and he writes a letter that he means to be passed around to all of these exiles being persecuted um, as the early followers of Jesus. And, um, and it's an important one for us as we imagine increasingly what does it look like to be the church in exile. And we talked a lot about that when we went through chapter 1 of uh, the church. Um, is, uh, God's people have always had this exilic status, um, but maybe over the past uh, couple hundred years, um, with the American experiment, we got fooled in the fact that maybe, maybe we could escape that and uh, maybe we could, this would be our home and um, that's beginning to fail us and we're beginning to feel that more and more and we're beginning to wrestle with the fact that we are exiles in this world. What does that look like? Um, First Peter has a lot of wisdom there and so that's why we chose the book. And he begins his, he begins, uh, First Peter begins with him giving um, the exiles just breathtaking promise of what belongs to them. Verses uh, 1 through 12 of chapter 1 are some of the most glorious promises of Scripture. They just they uh, speak to our inheritance that is imperishable and unfading, that is kept in heaven for us. He calls us 
um, elect of the Father, um, that we are chosen by God in this status, though we are rejected by the world, we are chosen by our Father. And then he moves into application, and a lot of 1 Peter will be about application. He goes from promise to therefore, and he gets into application. And uh, what happens is that that application builds and builds and builds toward the end of chapter 1, where Peter essentially says the highest application, the highest form of obedience for the Christian is love, sincere brotherly love. That the, 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 the purpose of our obedience is actually the name of the sermon when I preached that. The very purpose of our obedience is that this community would be this peculiar community that prioritizes the ethic of love above everything else. And then um, he goes into this excursion about the word of God um, at the end of verse one, uh, end of chapter 1, and then we go into where we are tonight. Now, um, I actually believe, the more I studied this, um, I don't know if you know this, but the, the, the chapter numbers and the verse numbers, that's not a part of the original uh, manuscripts of the Bible. Th- those are there just as um, literary ways to, to help you uh, divide it up. Um, so, uh, you know, those are not infallible. And I actually believe that these three verses work better with chapter 1 than they do chapter 2. I think a, a cleaner break is after we're done tonight. Um, then there's a better transition. I think this, these three verses, are uh, the, full, the, the, the final outcome and overflow of everything that's been said in chapter 1. So I think it actually probably belongs with chapter 1. Um, that's why I spent so much time kind of catching us up. So this is a passage, these three verses, where it is important um, to see it in its context from, be- from before, but also um, to look, at the, look first at the end rather than the beginning. Um, And what I mean by that is that the ground and foundation of the command comes after the command. Look at his qualification there in in verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's the condition of his application. The same as if it were placed at the beginning. In fact, you could put that at the beginning of these verses and, and it may even make more sense for you. Essentially what he's saying is, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, then put away all malice and so forth. So his expectation for us is precipitated by the fact that we have indeed tasted the goodness of the Lord. Put it another way. If you have not tasted the goodness of the Lord, then what he is going to be asking here will seem awful. In other words, you're going to need a new palate for this. Um, You're going to need what what I'm calling here transformed taste buds of the soul. Because Peter is going to ask us to essentially fast from that which tastes so good to us naturally and to feast upon that which tastes Honestly, bland and awful to us, naturally. And that's how I'm going to order my thoughts this evening. If, indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good, then two things. The fast, verse 1. The feast, verse 2. The fast, what does he want us to be done with? Verse 1. Put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all slander. Um, Last week we talked, I I took... um, special kind of topical sermon and talked about Paul's admonition to put sin to death. This week, Peter used the language of put away. And the concept is really the same here. Put to death, put away. The idea is that these things are gone. 
And actually, a better translation here would be something like rid yourself of all malice and so forth, which has the feel that's more final than put away. And notice the uh, language of totality here. Put away, rid yourself, all malice, all deceit, all slander. So what I'm trying to say here is much like last week where we looked at Paul's extreme language of putting sin to death, Peter has in mind similarly a complete and total ridding ourselves. Or to use the language of taste from verse 3, this isn't a diet. This is a total and unending fast. You're done with these things in every way. So what exactly is it that we are to fast from? At first, this looks like a random list of sins, doesn't it? But there's actually something that connects all of them. Again, back in chapter 1, verse 22, we talked about how Peter sees love, sincere brotherly love, as the highest form of obedience. Indeed, the very purpose of our obedience. He sees the ethic of love as supreme to the Christian faith. And then right on the heels of that expectation, he's now telling us to rid ourselves of certain things. And what are those things? They are the common threats to love. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. If love is to be our highest aim, then these things are our greatest foes. Therefore, Peter is telling us we must put them to death fully and finally. They all have a social, uh, communal horizon to them. They all speak of the ways we engage with one another. And he's saying that what we normally do together, malice, deceit, slander, it has to be gone if we're to be a people of love. But here's the problem with that command. The call is to fast from these things, but these are our addiction. Peter is calling us to be a counter-community of exiles who prioritize the ethic of love, but the world that's natural to us, the world that we have always known, the world you inhabit every day, the world of your own sinful desires, is completely counter to love. It is a world infused with the very things that Peter is telling us to put away here. Think about the social order of our world. You can think about your workplace, you can think about your campus, you can think about uh, your, even your families, you can think about even a church community, sadly. Really, any community you can think of, do they not run on the very things that he's telling us to rid ourselves of? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. This is the daily bread, to use the language of tasting, this is the daily bread of our sinful world. They serve as our social currency, the, just the way we engage and interact with one another. So the problem is imagining how we could ever even be this people. I mean, could you imagine a social life without malice that literally you harbor no bitterness in your heart towards others? There's not that competitive anger going on inside of you. Could you imagine no deceit? That in your interactions with each other, you aren't posturing, you aren't manipulating, you aren't spinning the narrative, you aren't all outlying to get what you want. Just truth. Could you imagine no hypocrisy? That there's nothing duplicitous about your life. You aren't projecting an image to others. You aren't pretending to be something you're not. It's just what you see is what you get. This is who I am. Authentic. Could you imagine no envy, that you are totally content in your social relationships? 
that you don't walk into a room like this and say, wish I looked like her. Wish I had friends like him. I wish I had their life. I wish I had their husband. I wish I had their children. I wish I had that. Could you imagine community which is contentment? Seems impossible. Could you imagine? No slander. Think about your tongue. Could you imagine that you don't use your tongue as a weapon against others for your own promotion or desires, but literally the only thing that comes out of your mouth are those things which build others up? What I'm trying to get you to see here is that when you, when you actually consider what Peter is asking of, us of here, um, what he's essentially done is he has taken, taken that which functionally runs our society and runs our community, the common ways in which we interact with each other, and he has demanded that we rid ourselves of them. But the problem is this is all we know how to be with each other. We can't even imagine what a world like that would be. That's how normal they are to us, and that's how addicted we are to these things. But remember verse 3. This command is contingent on if, in fact, you have tasted that the Lord is good. You will never consider such radical redefinition of life and community unless you have tasted the goodness of new life in Jesus. What happens is that the taste buds of our souls are transformed and we actually do begin to crave after a world free from these things. That world's called the kingdom of God. And so we struggle. What happens is the Christian struggles between two worlds. We have tasted the goodness of the Lord. We have tasted the goodness of his kingdom. We want to put away all forms of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, slander, and so forth. And yet, at the same time, we are torn by the world of our addiction, our way of being, that which is natural to us. In other words, we've tasted the goodness of verse 1. We want verse 1, but we can't imagine verse 1. It's kind of like we're saying, if I'm to fast from these things, then what would I even eat? <laughs> it's like, I'd just starve because this is all I do. And you will starve if you fast from these things, and then you will return to feed on them again, unless you fill yourself with something altogether different, which is where Peter takes us. He doesn't just tell us to put away, to fast from these things. He then invites us to fill ourselves with something altogether different. We've seen the fast, verse 1. Let's look at the feast in verse 2. Instead, put away all that, and instead, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And what's interesting about that is um, you would expect him to commend to us applications here that simply counterbalance verse 1. What I mean by that is um, you would expect him to say, put away malice and be kind. Put away deceit and be truthful. Put away envy and be content. In other words, you might expect another list here, right? Verse 1, here's my list of what not to do. Verse 2, here's my list of what to do. But he takes a different direction with it. Verse 1, rid yourself of all these things that threaten love. And then in verse 2, fill yourself with pure spiritual milk. What that means is he views a person who is feeding upon this pure spiritual milk as the antithesis of the person of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and so forth. Put another way, he sees pure spiritual milk as the means of freeing ourselves from the addictive power of these um, unhealthy habits and behaviors and, and the means of becoming this new person who instead of malice is kind. 
instead of deceit is truthful. He doesn't have to give us a list. He just gives us this pure spiritual milk and says, feast on this and you'll become that. And that's really important, very important for those of us who want to be different, which if you've tasted the Lord is good, you do want to be different. So many people want to be someone different. They don't, they don't want to be verse 1, but they don't know how. And so what they do is they try to self-produce a different person, and it never works. And the reason they fail is because you can't self-produce this. The, the, the simple religious, don't be bad, instead be good, never works. Instead, transformation is produced by something else, some sustenance, and it is this pure spiritual milk. So the huge question, honestly, of the text is really obvious. What is this pure spiritual milk? It's like a miracle drug. <laughs> Where can I find this pure spiritual milk? What is it? Well, the answer is not as profound and um, extraordinary as you might want it to be. In fact, um, you might think it's incredibly normal, even boring. Um, I'm going to tell you the answer, then I'm going to defend it, because that really is the important part of the text. The answer is, this pure spiritual milk is the Word of God. Your translation might even have that there. Some translations do. Um, some, some translations say, um, crave pure spiritual milk of the Word. Um, now, that's not in the manuscript. That's not in the Greek. The word word is not there. Um, so they put it in there as kind of a, a translation decision. But is it appropriate? Is that what Peter has in mind here? Um, that's the central command of the passage. So we really need to make sure that we are confident in what he is saying because we're going to give our lives to this as the answer to putting away all these things and as to becoming a person of love. We need to make sure it is. So let me defend that. Um, I do agree. Most commentators say this, and I agree with them, and I'll defend it with two ways. The first reason I say pure spiritual milk is the word of God is a contextual one. Um, we know that he is referring to the word because the previous context, chapter 1, ended by expounding on the nature of God's word. In verse 23, it says that we are born again through the word of God. Then he goes into this, into this um, waxing eloquently about the enduring nature of the word, and then following right on the heels of this, we are told like newborn infants to crave pure spiritual milk. The same thing that causes us to be born again, same imagery, we're born of the word, and now that same thing feeds us, the word of God. So the first reason I would say is context. second reason is the way he describes it here. Milk is described as pure and spiritual. What is it that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt is spiritually pure? No defilement, no error. Well, our doctrine of inspiration tells us that that is the word of God alone. The word of God alone is infallible. So we can be confident here, it's, I'm just saying this, we can be confident here that he has in mind God's word when he speaks of pure spiritual milk. So that's the big application. That's the big command of the text is to feast on the word. Now, I want to press in there because that is the big command. I want to press in here application. Um, and I think I might have to do that because I think, um, I think you might say to that, well, hold on. I love the word. I have a quiet time. I go to a Bible study. It doesn't seem to be this miracle drug that's producing this new me like this. Why is the word pure spiritual milk and how do we appropriate it in our lives? I think that's the big application of the text. So I want to spend some time here challenging us. 
Now, the advantage I do have as a pastor of, of uh, um, an evangelical, Bible-loving congregation is that I probably don't have to convince you of the importance of the Word. Um, this church, TCPC, loves and cherishes God's Word. And for that, I am very thankful. Um, if I were in a lot of churches in our culture, I'd probably have to um, convince them of the importance of the Word, the supreme importance of the Word. So I'm thankful uh, for your love of the Word of God. Um, most people here have a love, appreciation, and adoration of God's Word, and that's good. However, that said, <laughs> this command to crave pure spiritual milk has a challenge for us as well. And I would like to take some time by way of application to press in on us here. I wonder, I wonder what you think of, um, what, what you think it means to be a person and to be a community that prioritizes the Word of God. May I speak to a common blind spot within our tribe, our uh, little strand of Christianity, the, the evangelical, um, reformed evangelical world, a blind spot that we have. When we think of prioritizing the Word, when we think of the power of the Word, we think we must study the Bible. In fact, that's what we call it. <laughs> we have even labeled our personal devotions or our small group meetings as Bible studies. And may I speak very bluntly about that? Um, that is a woeful, shallow view that I think is really hurting us. I think the way we approach the Word is really hurting us. Look at the way Peter describes things in verse 2. Like newborn infants crave pure spiritual milk. Does that sound like an analytical study to you? To me, it sounds like a carnal, desperate, crying out, craving, clinging to, feeding upon God's Word lest I die. That's how Brooks is. That's how my Henry is. And just all day long, milk, 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 milk. I gotta have milk. Give me milk. Give me milk. Give me milk. And I'll cry if I don't have it. To use Jonathan Edwards' analogy about the word being described as sweet as honey in the Psalms, Edwards says, there's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a taste of its sweetness. Who has a better understanding, I ask you, who has a better understanding of the sweetness of honey? The scientist who studies and evaluates its composition or a child who has a taste? To many people in our little subculture, the conservative, evangelical, gospel coalition world that we live in, to many people in our little tribe, having a rational judgment that the word of God is sweet and never tasted sweetness. It is very possible to be a community where it appears that the word is valued when in reality the word is completely neglected. It is possible for a community to even pride themselves on being people who are all about the word of God and never tasting the word of God. So let me help us see this in practical ways. Uh, let me press in and just you see if this resonates with you. Um, consider your personal time with the word. I wonder how you approach that. Is it a study? Is it a Bible study? Or is it meditating upon the Word that overflows into desperate prayers from the Word? Praying the Word to God. 
Um, the Bible doesn't ever say, uh, study the word. The Bible, the Bible says, blessed is a man who meditates on the law. Consider your small group communities. Is it getting together to study the word in such a way that our fellowship never gets personal, honest, vulnerable, but is a detached communal analysis? Or do we gather together to press down the promises and applications of the word of God into the most intimate and difficult details of our lives? Honestly, this campus is teaching our other campus how to do that. Y'all do this well. Um, that you've created a culture of, of small groups and community um, that it's, it's not let's get together and watch a video series or do the latest Bible study. Let's get together and talk about applying this sermon into our hearts and lives. Thank you for that. Keep doing that. That's the way to do it. Um, consider the way we apply the word to our lives. Is the application of the word a precise, systematic theology of the word? Which I'm all for, by the way. I'm, I'm a systematic theologian at heart, and I, I love precise theology. But is that the ultimate application of the word, or is the application of the word obeying the word? Novel concept, I know. I know a lot of people who have a pristine theology, and their life is a mess. Their marriage is a mess, their kids are a mess, their lifestyle and personal habits are a mess, they are addicted to porn and greed and bitterness and slander, but man, can they debate theology. It is amazing how we can know the word so well and our lives be a total mess. So novel idea, what if application of the word is to obey the word, to do what it says, to love what it loves, to hate what it hates? Consider the way we view the preaching of the word. Do you love preaching because you love the intellectual exercise of the word? You love a well-reasoned argument and good oratory skills and all that stuff. It, it, it tickles your intellectual fancy. Not your fantasies, your fancy. That's a bad slip. Um, because it tickles your itching ears, to use the language of, uh, of Paul? Or do you love the preaching of the Word because you're craving to be fed? Do you just download all those podcasts and all those preachers because you just, you just love to hear how awesome they are at preaching? Or do you want to be fed? A good way to discern that is, and this is going to sound very self-serving, but uh, nonetheless, a good way to discern that is, do you listen to preaching critically or submissively? Analytically or obediently? Is your first thought, where did I agree with him? Or where did I disagree with him? Or is it, what did God have for me this morning? Is your first thought, was that a good sermon? Which, don't ever tell preachers, good sermon. Like, what does that even mean? Don't tell that to Marsh. Good sermon. Does that mean I do bad sermons? What does that mean? Good sermon. Is your first thought, was that a good sermon? Or is, what did God have for me here? My soul that needs the word. Consider the way we view the sacrament we are about to partake of. The sacraments are visible, tangible, available to our senses, expressions of the word of God. You can't find a more practical application to tasting the goodness of the Lord than to taste communion. And um, at our church, we made the decision to go to weekly communion. For that to happen, we had to shave a few minutes off the normal length of our sermons. 
is that a move away from prioritizing the Word? Well, if the Word is only a good sermon, then yes. But if the Lord's Supper feeds us with the Word, then that move is actually prioritizing the Word even more at TCPC. And on and on I can go. What I'm trying to get you to see is I'm thankful that we have a community that loves the Word. I wonder if we understand exactly how to appropriate that in our lives. I wonder if we need our understanding of what it means to feast on the pure spiritual milk of the Word expanded. So yes, according to Paul, the feast is the Word, and this we agree, but that truth leads to implications and applications that go far beyond what we typically make. So verse 4, fast from these sinful practices which are a threat to love. Instead, verse 2, feast on the Word of God. To put in the language of my sermon title, our taste buds are transformed where those things in verse 1 which were previously so sweet become disgusting. And the Word of God which is previously disgusting to the world becomes so sweet to us. But again, all this is predicated on verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Listen, if you haven't tasted that the Lord is good, if you are um, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you are um, and you're trying to wrestle through this, the, the lifestyle that I'm offering you right now, a lifestyle where you actually put to death your deceits and your lies and your manipulations and your hatred and your slander and all that stuff, and you actually just have to live a life that is saturated and soaked in the Word of God, that lifestyle may sound kind of boring or even just awful. I understand that because you have to taste that the Lord is good before you want this. And if you have not tasted the Lord is good, or if it's been a while since you have tasted the Lord is good, then that's what needs to happen, honestly. So let me close, and I'm at brief close, by convincing you, for the first time perhaps, or reconvincing you that the Lord is good. That the Lord is good. His goodness is before us in our passage, but it's easy to miss. Peter is actually really stretching our visions of God here. How is this passage inviting us to, exceed, to see the exalted Lord of heaven and earth? If indeed, you if indeed you know, you taste that the Lord is good. How are we to see the Lord Almighty in this passage? Well, we are to see ourselves as newborn infants craving pure spiritual milk. And the milk is the word of God. I ask you, who's feeding us? If it's the word of God, then, then, then the comparison is intentional there. It's, it's, it's like the milk from a mother. I ask you, is there anything more comforting, more safe, more secure, more tender, more loving, more nurturing, more protective, more intimate than a child at its mother's breast? That is the imagery that this passage is inviting us to see when it comes to our God. And that's not heresy, by the way. There's a prophet who actually speaks exactly in those languages where he says, can a mother forget the child at her breast? Even if she did, I'll never forget you. He's inviting you to see him that way. The exalted Lord of heaven and earth as loving and tender and nurturing and protective and devoted and intimate and in love with you as a mother looking down at a child at her breast. What kind of a Lord is this? This Lord is good. Say good, Lord.
Let me thank him. Let me pray to him. Lord, you are good, and I pray it would awaken in us taste buds, taste buds of the soul for you, for your word. Not just, Lord, for, for another Bible study, but I'm talking about a life devoted. I'm meditating on your word and memorizing your word and praying your word and clinging to your word and having a community of people who speak the truths of your word into our lives, Lord, just saturated with the feeding of your word that we might be a place that puts to death all threats of love and become this peculiar community that loves above all else. Feed us now with a tangible expression of your word in the sacrament, we pray in your name. Amen.